I think this is our second Sunday or third Sunday seeing Seth up there like that. And it always just kind of inspires me, you know, that if those of you that are introverts, if he can do that, you can too. So just to share that with you, it's a great moment of inspiration. It's great to see you this morning. We are glad you're here on this post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Could you turn to someone very quickly and say good morning to them, if you would mind? Feel free to shake their hand if you are uh, inclined to do so. Uh, it is always a great time. Got up this morning and looked outside, and uh, it was like, you know, South Carolina or like Seattle. We're not real sure the fog, but yeah, we are thrilled that uh, the Lord has given us this time of worship together. Today we conclude our teaching in the book of James. So if you'll turn to James chapter 5, and in a moment we will start with verse 12 and then work our way to the end of that chapter, a few verses together. And so just as kind of before we get, we're talking about prayer. Last week, excuse me, instead uh, instead patience or be patient, we talked about. And today, instead pray. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we realize as we look back through the book of James together over the past 12 weeks, we realize that James started talking to us. One, he introduces himself as that of being the half-brother of Christ. And we talked about how that relates to the letter that he is writing and who he is writing to. And then he starts with us about the purpose of trials within our life. And then he comes to the thread that we find woven throughout the five chapters. And that is that of faith. That is that of faith that that we realize that faith without works is dead. And he tells us that so many times in so many ways. So he talks about faith. And then he moves on to that of a deeper understanding of the very character and the nature of God, because our faith is built on that understanding of the character and the nature of God and how God sees us and how we see God. And so he gave, gives us these foundations. And then he says, OK, let me talk to you about some things in your life. Come close. I want you to take a moment and hear these things about what I see in your life. And so he confronts us about discrimination and he talks to our favorite and favoritism. He talks to us about how we use our our words. And then he talks to us about uh, that of conflict. And that is that of a conflict, not just as an external, but it's an inter- internal conflict in our life about that of being friends with the world and being friends with God. And then he goes on to talk about generosity within our lives. And then he says, so of all those things, here's how you're responding. How are you responding to the weighted uh, wait, weightiness of life. How are you responding to the trials and the troubles? How are you responding to all the responsibilities? All those things that weigh you down in life. How are you responding? And then last week we, he said to us, hey, instead of the way that you have been responding, instead of all of those kinds of things, then why don't you simply be patient? Instead, be patient. And so today he brings us back from patience to prayer. He brings us to prayer in the light of all of these things that are going on in your life. He said, maybe instead of dealing with it the way you have dealt with it in the past, why don't you try praying about it? Why don't you try praying about it? Because he's writing to a people we know that are in dispersion. There are people that are fleeing Jerusalem because of the persecution that they find after the stoning of Stephen. And so they're, they're filing out of Jerusalem. They're going into the known world. They're planting churches and making Christ known. And so there's a great weight upon them. And so James is addressing how they respond to those trials within their lives. And then Christ, you know, and then he says, so, but here is how Christ would have you to respond in, in contrast to how you have been responding. It's what we have talked about so many times at Hope together, and that is the real of our life and where we are, the reality of who we are and what we're dealing with, and that of the ideal, that place that Christ wants to take us. And that vast distance between the real of our lives and the ideal of our lives is a stress that you and I manage that always pushes us to God. There's a beauty of those trials in our lives that pushes us to Christ, it says. And so last week, simply... Uh, James reminds us of the precious fruit of the soil, he calls it, and that is that, that journey, that dirt road of sanctification, that re- the reality of what Christ is doing in our life, that he is growing us, he's completing us in him, and that is the greatest treasure of our life. And when we read all of these, these chapters, we realize that, oh, sometimes they seem to be very disconnected in the book of James, but they're very connected. You have to realize this. James is not writing this necessarily under his own power, but he is simply being inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit. So this book is so relevant, so pragmatic, 
and so very theological because you can read it, these five chapters, and you can read it as just a five-chapter counseling session so that you can simply uh, change some behavior within your life and modify your life in some ways. But what I realize is this, that there the, the book of James is there to, yes, inform our minds, absolutely, without any doubt, it's there to do that. But it engages our heart also. It speaks to our very core of who we are and how we see God and how God sees us. It, it comes to the very faith of our life, so it, it does engage our heart, and that leads to transformation. It's easy to look at James and say, oh, James is a list of rules. Here's the things that I have to do in my life in order to be where God wants me to be. But what we have understood through James is this, that rules doesn't change anyone. In fact, you and I are very resistant when we're given this list of rules. But yet a glimpse of what Christ wants us to become does change us. It does give us hope. And that is exactly who and where James is. It's progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. And in that we find great rest within our lives. So we start in James chapter 5, this time again, verse 12. And, and I read it together. We read it last week. It was where we left off, but it connects what we talked about last week with our teaching today. But above all, my brothers, do not swear. And, and understand this, because again, you can read James very um, surface and superficially, and, and you can pull things out of that that are, yes, they do apply, but yet there's something very deeper. So we always read this text and we think, oh, that if I'm ever going to court, that I'm not to simply take an oath or swear. that. But understand that that's not what James is addressing. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something deeper within our lives. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes. Let your yes be true. Let your no be no. Let your no be true so that you may not fall under condemnation. And, and when we look at this, we think there's something very weighty here that we understand, and that is that we talked about last week as we finished up, and that is that we make bargains and deals with God. We come to God and we try to bargain with God. And so what James says is this, here's an alternative to taking an oath. Here's an alternative to bargaining with God. Here's an alternative to saying to God, God, if you will do this, then I will do that for you. You know, God, if you will work this out in my life, then I will serve you forever. Here's the alternative to do that. Because when we do that, that, is a, that confronts and that affronts the very grace and the mercy of God. Because what we're trying to do, we're trying to use our own life as a bargaining chip with a God who has already established himself as a God that is full of compassion and love. And he is committed to completing the purposes of my life. And so what James says is this, instead of making oaths, Instead of doing that, pray. He says, pray about this. Last week he said, be patient. Now he's telling us to pray over this. Yes, because we find that this is part of the underlying theme that we read through and out the book, and that is faith. If faith without works is dead. And what does genuine faith look like? It's this, that I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and my neighbor as myself, that that is genuine faith. So he says, hey, instead of bargaining with God, why don't you just pray? Why don't you just pray? And then he said, at times when life gets tough, not only do you try to bargain with God, but you become arrogant. You become arrogant, and there's fighting among you, he said. And that leads to contempt toward others and toward God, because I'm not getting what I feel like I deserve. But other people around me, it appears that they are. And so James says, hey, instead of doing that, instead of fighting and being arrogant, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? Yeah. Just before the fight breaks out, why don't you pray? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yes. I always love this story. It's one of my favorite, I don't know why, one of my favorite Christmas stories about my family. And it's an interesting story. Some, I may have told it to you before. If I have, then to act like I never, you've never heard it before from me this morning, okay? And humor me for a moment, yes. But some years ago, we had one child, and that was, that was um, Chad, our very first one. And we lived in Tennessee. 
And we decided that we would get a, a live tree that year, so we set on a mission. And we thought a mission would be a few hours to find a tree. And what we found out later was that I think it took us 10 hours to locate a tree. Understand that. Because what our tree has to look like, it has to be full and perfect. There can be no holes, you know. And I don't know if you're like that or not in, in, in that particular thing. But you've got to stand it up, look at it. Don't like that one. Stand up another and look at that one. And man, it, you have to practice patience, don't you? Isn't that right? Yes. Some of you have just gone through that. Yes. And you think, well, that's hell. It really is getting ready for Advent. Yes. But no, you got to have it looking just right. Shape. God came down. He shaped this tree, put it in the woods just for you, brought it to this place. And by providence, you come to the right lot to buy it. And so we find the tree, we bring it home, and, and we begin to put lights on the tree. My wife, I love her because she, she has great traditions. She's built in our family. And so on a live tree, what she wants me to do is she wants me to wrap every branch. Yeah, she wants me to wrap every branch. Isn't this true? And this is a good thing and not a bad thing. Understand this, okay? This is a good thing, okay? So let's just put that out there right out front. So she wants me to wrap every branch. Well, Mark lacks patience, okay? So here's Mark. Mark lacks patience, and we do that, and it just doesn't go well. And so what we did that year is that we had set up a video camera that my father-in-law had bought us on a tripod in our living room, and we're videoing putting up the tree with that little Chadwick right there in the room with us. And what breaks out is a huge fight between Reba and I over the Christmas tree. It does. Yes. A great way to start out Advent. Yes. It's all my fault. So I take all responsibility for this. I do. Yes. But it breaks out. And then all of a sudden in the middle of this argument that we are having over this tree and lights and everything else, we look up and realize that we see the camera, the red light on the front is blinking, that we have videoed the whole thing. Every word, every moment, everything said, every bad look we gave each other, all those things were on video, you know? And so in talking about prayer, and James says, instead of fighting, instead of arrogance, why don't you pray? I thought, what if one of us had said to the other during this confrontation, hey, why don't we take a moment hold hands, and let's just pray together, you know? That would have made it worse, wouldn't it? Yes. Can you feel the tension rise in the room? Absolutely. Yes. Like, what tactic is that, you know? What are you trying to pull? You can just know, don't you ever, you know, some, some ladies in the room or some men or turn their wives and say, don't you ever try to pull that with me, okay? Because I am not going to buy that, yes. But James says to us, listen, here's the way you've handled all these things, all these trials, all these, these tough moments, leaving Jerusalem, going out into the world, being persecuted, and, and you have handled that with arrogance because you feel like you have not gotten justice in your life. Yes. And then they begin to handle those things with materialism. They, they did, and they look at the rich, and they think the rich is wrong. I should have what the rich has, and so I simply am going to respond to the sinfulness in a very sinful way in a lot of times. And, and to say, I've got to, you know, it's my own su- sufficiency. I'm going to make things happen. And, 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 you know, I've told you before, the greatest thing that I can say to you is that you're not as awesome as you think you are. And when we say that to one another, well, we, it points us to the awesomeness of God and the sufficiency of God in our life. And so James says, hey, instead of simply trying to amass things to fill that void in your life, maybe you should, should pray. Maybe you should pray, is what he says. So can we talk about prayer for a few moments together? Well, it's kind of the, you know, the, kind of the cat's out of the bag because we know what we're going to talk about, right? We're going to talk about prayer. So if we're going to talk about prayer, then I think that, well, I know that James, in the way he's put these texts together, he makes it very simple for you and I. So it's a couple of questions, three of them. And simply the first question is this, when should we pray? It's James chapter 5, verse 13. When should we pray? Is anyone among you suffering, he said, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And what this does, this addresses the, simply the diversity of circumstances for prayer is what it does. 
And so James' desire is to engage those he's writing to in a very personal way because of what they're experiencing. And the amazing thing about James, it applies to you and I, and it addresses us and how and what we're experiencing today also. Because James is this moment we take out of our life and all the busyness, and we kind of breathe and we step back for a moment and we look at ourselves. In fact, in fact, James says it's like looking in this, in this mirror, that we look and we see this reflection of who we are and what do we do with what we see. And, and, and so he says, hey, think about who you are. Think about who you are, and here's what you do. I want you to inject into your life this practice of prayer, this spiritual discipline of prayer. So the thought here, as it's very poetic, as he kind of lays it out in these first couple of verses, he says, pray in all circumstances. This prayer is this, it's the encompassing instruction that he gives us this morning. It's the right course of action for our life, that all of life's situations, that we should pray over them. So he says, so here's a couple of thoughts about when you should pray. He said, first, that you should pray when you're in trouble. Pray when you're in trouble. You know, and the suffering and the trouble is not necessarily defined. Why? Because it's an all-encompassing statement. All those times in life when you feel like you're in trouble, pray. And you say, Mark, that is crazy because as I know to do that. Why something so obvious that James points out? Because when we find ourselves in trouble, I think sometimes we have this moment where we look at God and we say God is uncaring and God is unloving and God is unable. And in that moment, we tend to pray less in our life. But no, James says in that moment of trouble, you should simply pray more. And then he goes on to say, hey, in those times when you are happy, in those happy times, Pray is what he says. And it doesn't necessarily give what those moments are specifically. Why? Because it's all-encompassing. It involves all those moments of our lives. And you say, Mark, well, well, that's understandable that we should do these things when things are going well. But I think sometimes when things are going well in our life, we tend to fall in moments of complacency where we're not praying. You know, I'm only going to pray when maybe things are going bad and I think that I need God. No, he said, do those things. Do these things even when things are going well, he said. And then he says, I love it because he covers all these areas of our life. He said that you should pray during sickness, but he doesn't necessarily list a specific sickness. In fact, the word sickness there can mean sickness or even when you feel weak because it encompasses all those times of my lives. Because, listen, we live in more contemporary times than the people that James wrote this letter to. I understand that. But when weakness comes in their life, as it comes in my life, that sometimes we feel hopeless. We feel like there's no answer to the thing that I'm facing within my life. And so there's this helpless or hopeless feeling. And so what I realize is this, that during those times, sometimes we withdraw and we don't pray because we think that there is no need to do that. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that that is the very time in which we should pray and reach out to God in those moments of weakness within my life. I love that. So what James is saying in this overarching statement is this, prayer covers all the areas and all the times of your life. Yes, There's not one moment in your life that you are going to come across where prayer doesn't apply. That's what he's saying. It covers everything in all of our lives. And more specifically in context, James is talking about, he refers to the prayer of healing here. He does. And and when I begin to look at that, what I realize that in that prayer, in that gift to the church, that gift of healing to the church, to you and I today, that is God's goal to accomplish two things. One is that it's the common good of the church. It's the common good of the believer. It's a gift to the church. And secondly, it's a declaration to the world. And it's very much what we're going to talk about through our Advent season of the already but not yet kingdom to come. That that not everything will be fixed in this life. Understand that. Not everything will be fixed in this life. Not every injustice will be made right, and not every disease will be eradicated. We understand that. We live in a Genesis chapter 3 world. But there is a day coming, there is a day coming when it will be, but in this world, as the kingdom has come, God does heal, and it's a gift to the church. It's a gift to the church. 
And I think we go days sometimes and months or weeks without really ever having this thought. So when should we pray? Oh, we pray over all the situations of our life. How should we pray? That's the next. It's simple, isn't it? How should we pray? Go back to verse 14. Read a few that I've already read, and then we'll move on to verse 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that last part that I just read that we will talk about in a moment, oh, that's the part where we get stuck a lot of times, yes. And we feel like that our prayers are not effective. But the purpose of this is to motivate you and I to pray. Is He encourages us. And then he says, this is the way I envision prayer to work in the church. This is the James says, hey, here's how I envision prayer to work in your lives. So here's a couple of thoughts, and I pull them right directly from the text. He said, we should call on the elders of the church. How should we pray? We should call it on the elders of the church. And, and again, this incorporates this whole thread of faith. Because just asking for someone to pray for you is an act of faith. It's an expression of faith. So we find that woven throughout the book, and it is a condition of effective prayer that James says... But faith is not, our prayer here is not just limited to elders. Get this, because we get hung up sometimes here. It's not just limited to elders, pastors, teachers, leaders. It's not just limited to that. No, but what this is, more importantly, I think, I believe, is an expression of that of submission and unity in the church. It's, a, it's conditions for powerful prayer. And, and I think that what we have to understand here, and let me kind of work this out, bring it all together at the end, and hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will, you, this will make sense to you. And, and, and this will change your view about prayer. Contrary to some of our church backgrounds, our ecclesiastical backgrounds for many of us, that when he talks about this, there's no indication that he's referring to that of specialized gifts. It's not that at all, no. But it's a spiritual power available to the church today, that of the gifts of healing. It's exercised here through elders, absolutely. But don't get hung up on the who part of it. No, that's not where we get hung up. No, but our focus has to be on the gift from God to the church, and that is the gifts of healing. Now, let me clear the air for a moment about the gifts of healing. Because you can go back and you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And then verse 28, and there's many others that I could give you. Feel free to send me an email, and I will email you some others, or we'll have a conversation over coffee. But understand this. Um, the, b- before we say anything else, to make this declarative statement, the gifts of healing, the gifts of healing were intended for the church. Understand that. In the days of Paul... As he, began, as he wrote 1 Corinthians in the days of James, as he wrote the book of James, and in our day today, the gifts of healing are intended for the church. That has to be understood before we go any further. It's not that we believe God heals. What we know from Scripture is that the gifts of healing are intended for the church today. But when I read this text, the New Testament does not talk about the gift of healing. Now, here is an important part, because I think this helps us to understand what James is saying here. It's not, we're not referring to people in the church that are healers. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not the point. No, the gifts of healing suggest that God at different times... For different sicknesses works through different people with gifts of healing. It was never intended to be a, a gifts or a gift that someone would boast in. What I realize is this: that that gifts without love are dangerous. Realize that, and the scriptures bear that out to be true. But there are three types of prayer that Paul is talking, or that James is talking about in the verses that we just read. He said, "You pray for yourself." that you have others pray for you, and you pray for each other. It's about the body being the body. It's about you and I being the body toward one another is exactly what this is all about. 
It's to affirm the agreement by the church. It reinforces community that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. They were not just called to Christ, but you and I are called to one another. And we are promised through agreement in the body of Christ with one another that it unleashes the powerful answers to our prayers. It's what Matthew 18 and 19 says. It says this, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Such a powerful word for you and I. And when we read this verse, we always get hung up with the who, and we don't focus on the gifts. It is gifts given to the church for you and I, the gifts of healing given, and it brings this agreement among the body that we pray for one another. We pray for one another. There's a powerful dynamic, I think, that is taught to you and I in these verses about the body of Christ and the way the body of Christ is envisioned by James. It's so powerful today. So what this means is this. Is there, is there work for the elders? Is there work for the pastors, the teachers? Yes, absolutely. I'm not denying that, and James says that. But what I'm saying is this, that if you desire to be prayed for and you are sick, you need healing in your life, whether it's spiritual or whether it's physical, whatever. If you desire, you don't have to have me to pray for you. Because it was never gifts given to boast in, but gifts given to operate through love. Yes. So that means when your kids are sick at home, you can pray for them. That's powerful, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That means that when we have a time of prayer at the end of the service and someone is up here and, and they're praying and they say, man, I'm struggling with this disease or I'm struggling with this sickness in my life, that you don't have to get up and come find me or one of the pastors or one of the staff members or teachers or leaders. No, that's not it. That you can pray for them. That you can pray the prayer of faith. It's about the body in agreement, being the body and bearing one another's burdens. It's such a powerful thing that, that the gifts of healing are given to the church. So he said, how should we pray we call the elders of the church the second is this that we should pray in the name of the lord the first practice about calling it elders it's about submission to each other then this is about submission to the lord himself it's not a formula for prayer understand that but it's a state in which to be praying it's this it's praying in union with christ it's james emphasis it's not just it's not on the oil understand that it's not on calling the elders but the power of the lord to heal it is the lord who heals that's the focus it brings us to the source of healing in our life it is the lord who heals we said this from the very beginning that god is for god that God is for His glory and for my ultimate joy. And so it is the Lord who heals. And we simply use that phrase, in the name of the Lord, it is the, simply saying the power comes from God, is what this says. Yes, it's you and I, in prayer, acting in union with Christ, to call upon the power of God. And so the third thing he says in this, how should we pray? That we should offer prayer in faith. Here's where we struggle. And I have to take a few moments to get through this one. So hang on for a minute because this is where we struggle. He said that you should offer prayer in faith. It's that common thread that we've seen woven throughout the book of James. Look at verse, and, and if you go back for a moment to chapter one and verse six, here's what he says. And this is the part that gets us. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So James has dedicated this letter to you and I, exhorting to you and I the goodness, the greatness of God, his character, his nature, those things that we understand about how God sees us and how we see God and, and those kind of, the character and the nature of God. Then James addresses after that he starts addressing our selfishness he starts addressing our arrogance our, our materialism as as he says all of these things are a lack of faith because you don't see god as being committed to simply completing his purpose for your life 
But he said, hey, instead of those things, pray in faith. It's about this assurance and how we approach God. Yes, that God is not this harsh father who responds to our needs by reminding us of all of our faults. No, that we are justified by faith. Yes, not our good deeds. Absolutely not. That somehow earn us favor with God. But this statement with no doubting, Lord, there's a lot of distortions to that statement of no doubting. And that's where we get stuck sometimes. Sometimes, you know, I'm not going to pray because I have, I'm doubting things in my life, so I can't go to God and I'm not going to pray. God's not going to hear. God's not going to honor. So I'm just not. And there's a distortions to this teaching of with no doubting. And I think first is this, and I have to mention two things to you this morning as we work through this thing about doubt and praying with no doubting. I think the first distortion of that statement is that it is the, it's the name it and claim it philosophy. And I have to say that. And if that offends you this morning, then call, talk to me about it, okay? And we'll talk through that. But, but that philosophy is that just whatever I name in faith then I claim it's given. There's a great danger there in that kind of philosophy because it's a misplacing of our faith in the raising of unbiblical expectations. It leads us to place our faith in the force of our own believing and not God. Understand that. And that is important for us to understand that. And then we expect freedom from all hardship in life. No, we have faith in the grace of God, absolutely, which enables faith to be exercised even in the toughest times of my life. It does. My faith is not in my faith. (laughs) And that's what that philosophy is. If I say the right things, do the right things, if I confess the right things, then that is faith in my faith, right? And if I do all of those things, then somehow I move God and God is obligated, obligated because I've done all the right things. I've said all the right things to do what I've asked him to do. It's faith in my own faith. No, no, it's not that at all. But my faith is in the grace of God because God gives me things even when I don't deserve them because he loves me and he has covered me with his mercy and his grace. I know Mark. I don't want to place my faith in Mark's faith. Understand that? No. Yes, and you know yourself, that is shaky and rocky, absolutely. That's why it's referred to in the book of James as like a wave of the sea. The second thing, I think, the first is that the name it, claim it, philosophy, and the second thing would be that we treat James's warning with, uh, about doubt superficially, that somehow this, what this means is that we suppress, uh, we suppress our mental doubt, and somehow we're going to manipulate God by, by coming to God and we suppress all those feelings and all those things that we have in our life as if God doesn't know how we feel or what we think. As we can hide something from the Lord? No, absolutely not. And when we do that, it, it, when we think that it's our power of positive thinking somehow that's going to, to motivate God, then what that results in my life? It results in fear. It's afraid of my own thoughts. Because when God discovers them, then God is going to deal with me over them. It's afraid of God holding those thoughts against me. And what it does, it cripples my faith. And it's a very perversion of what James teaches, that God gives freely without finding fault. I I want you to know it goes even back to what we read in James 5 and 12 about that, of letting your yes be yes, your no be no, about the integrity of your speech. And understand this, that you you don't have to try to impress God. Did you know that? You don't have to. No. God already loves you. God has already accepted you. God has already committed committed to fulfilling the purposes that he has set for your life. Understand that. We said this, we said something last week that God is full of compassion toward you. Realize that so that you don't have to try to impress God and come to him as if you don't have any fear within your life or you don't have any doubt. Understand that. But what James talks about here is something much deeper than that. And it goes to our very heart. It's something far deeper because it exposes our soul as being, well, James 1 and 8 says it's about being double-minded. 
It's about that soul that vacillates between that of being a friend of the world and being a friend of God. It's about our soul that vacillates between that being of self-reliant and God-reliant. That's exactly what he's talking about. And he said to live like that or to come to God in prayer like that is like you are the waves of the sea. It's un- you're unstable in your ways. So I thought, how, how best of the, you know, I, he gave us a great analogy of the waves of the sea. So how best, if I were James, and I, and I am not, but if I were James, then, then here's how I would illustrate that. That the most instability in my life is Mark being 60 years old writing this, okay? Understand that, right? Yes. Now, when I was younger, I rode those things, right? Yes. But now I think about falling, breaking something, recuperation, and the, re- the idea that I am extremely allergic to pain in my life, okay? Right? Yes. And so what James is talking about, it's not talking about a play on words to manipulate God. No. It's not coming to God and saying to him that I, I have no, no doubt in my life or no fear about this thing that I'm facing in my life. That's not it. It's almost as we almost have to lie to God sometimes when God knows the truth about us. Absolutely not. No, it's not that James is talking about that of, well, I'm going to remind God of everything that he should be doing in my life and I'm going to claim it so God is obligated. That's, that's not it. He said it's about your heart. It's about this vacillating in your heart about that of being God-reliant and are you self-reliant? Yes. And so we come to God and we find ourselves... Yeah, I know. It's scary, isn't it? Yes. We are praying about the gifts of healing, are we not today? Yes. But I don't want to put God to the test. No, I'm not going to do that because I know that they are for us today. Yes. But yet, I do realize that we find ourselves, we find ourselves in these moments of, and I, I used to ride. Yes. I know. If I nose planted, that would have been bad, would it not? Yes. Like, YouTube moment, have your camera. We find ourselves, when we come to God like that, in that moment of instability, where our heart is vacillating between being God-reliant or self-reliant. Yes? But when I find that I am God-reliant, I'm God-reliant because I understand or I have an understanding of, my, of the best of my ability of the nature and the character of God. That's, that's why I always tell you that we don't do these We'd self-help sermons because if you really, you know, we can spend 20 years talking about the nature and the character of God and you getting that into your heart. And, and when you do that, it, it guides you through life. So I don't have to give you five steps or 10 steps or those kinds of things. But when I realize that I come to God in this, this idea of I'm self-reliant, so I find myself in this place of instability, it's because I'm leaning on my own self. Yes. And I do that because I don't have an understanding of God's nature, how he sees me, and what his intentions are toward me. Now, that doesn't mean that God is always going to heal me like I want him to heal me. That is, that's not what that always means. It, it, it means that sometimes that God walks me through the trial of life. It does. It means that sometimes that my healing could be an eternal healing, but yet I know that God is still working to accomplish those purposes within my life. But there's still gifts of healing. But when I step away from myself and my mind is on him, well, I feel much better getting off of that. I really do, right? I mean, there's, there's just this feeling that just came over me. There's this release of tension from when I was standing on that because now I'm relying on him. And I rely on him to answer the prayers in my life, which I know will complete the purpose that he's designed for my life. And so it's not always how I want him to answer. But I know he does. The gifts of healing are for us today, the church. But my reliance, that doubting, asking without doubting, is not about 
misrepresenting myself to God. It's about being honest to him about where I am and my lack of faith and those kinds of areas. But it has to do with my heart. Who are you relying on this morning? That's the question. Who do you rely on? And so in this, in this uh, question of how I pray, the last thing is this, that we should pray united as repentant sinners. And, and I love this because James mentions this, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, one another that, that you might be healed. And I think it's interesting in this context of healing that James begins to talk about sin. And man, I could blow through this and leave this alone, you know, because it is a touchy area and you don't want to go there, Mark. But yet what I realize is you have to do that because what he does, he connects the sin and the illness. And there's a possibility of that, but not always a necessity of that. And James is not saying, oh, here's the thing, Mark. Oh, oh, you're sick, so there's, there's sin somewhere working in your heart or in your life, and that's the reason you're sick. That's not what he's saying. That's not, he's not saying that in a declarative manner at all. But what he's saying is this, that physical illness and guilt can be interwoven. And his point is this, that healing encompasses both physical and spiritual healing in our lives. That's it. It's not that God just wants to heal us spiritually and save us. No, that God desires to heal us physically within our life and emotionally within our life. It encompasses all the areas of our life. I love this. And also, this goes back to relationships. Because these people are under the great weight of, of life. And so under the great weight of life, the struggles sometimes bring struggles and strains on their relationships with one another. And so this healing that he's talking about, it's about their relationships with one another. Why? Because a common need that they all have is forgiveness. And it unifies them. And so if stood in, instead of judging one another, they're confessing to one another. And when you begin to confess to one another, then that results in forgiveness and reconciliation. And it reminds us that God is committed to accomplishing those purposes within our lives. And so what, John, what James is writing about, it's, it's spiritual freedom given to the church. It's not about spiritual gifts given to certain ones in the church, but it's about spiritual freedom given to the church that God heals us. That he heals us. So why should we pray? And this is it. And this is the end. And we bring the conclusion of James. This is it. Why should we pray? And I read these last few verses. Verse 15. And the prayer of, the, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Again, James encourages us to pray. Because he says, hey... There's a result to prayer, and the result to prayer is what he just says. The sick become well, they're raised up, their sins are forgiven, and they're healed. I think it's James's vision for you and I today of that of both spiritual and physical healing for our lives. But he said there's also some principles that are at work here, and that is the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And, and when you think of that statement and who he's writing to, these people are struggling and they're running for their lives in many cases. And those kind of, you think, but it's not there to place more despair in their lives. But James says, in your trials, you don't need, you don't need to simply, uh, the power that is gained by materialism or by arrogance or, or selfishness or fighting or oaths, but you use the power of prayer for which you need righteousness. Commit yourself to doing what is right. And that's messy, and that's inconsistent in my life and your life. But he said, commit yourself to doing what is right and rely on God in prayer. It's not that James is denying that our salvation is by faith. It's not that at all. Absolutely, that's not it. But he's convinced that genuine faith will express itself in righteousness. And genuine faith is the prayer 
The prayer of genuine faith is the prayer that is effective. Because what happens in our lives, what happens in my life when there's trials and there's tough struggles, when there's those times in my life, what happens is this that causes me to try to protect myself by unrighteous means. And so I get arrogant and, and, I, and I get all those kinds of things going on in my life. And it starts from the unbelief of who God is and what God is trying to accomplish within my life. And then he said, hey, here's the model. It is Elijah. He's a man just like you. And you say, why, why would he choose Elijah? Because Elijah is this super spiritual individual who is this mouthpiece for God. But yet he comes back to this point and says, he's a man just like you. He's not extraordinary. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's a man just like you. He said, strive earnestly in your life for the goal of righteousness. He said, but don't stop praying just because you have struggles. He said, you know, James is saying to us, don't wait until you get everything together. Kind of the way I see it. Don't wait until you get all the boxes checked off in your life spiritually. Don't strive for some super spirituality. That's why he said, Elijah's a man just like you. But he said, at this moment in your life, get down to the business of praying, he said. So what are the things that have kept you from prayer? We can use, I think, excuses in our life like time and place and all those kinds of things, but I think those are very superficial. I think they're much deeper in our lives than that. And I believe for us, some of you would say to yourself, but God doesn't hear me because of. And then you begin to simply regurgitate this list of reasons why that God should not hear you as if God thinks like you think. But Mark, I have, I'm afraid. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen. And, and I'm afraid of what if I don't get the answer that, that, I, that I want. And, and, and I, I have these doubts. Can I tell you something this morning? You can be honest with God. You can be honest with Him. Because He knows you already. He knows everything about you. So what are the things that keep you from praying? And when you make that list, you find that, oh, they're very superficial. Are you God-reliant or self-reliant? I think those are the things we have to ask ourselves. Where are you in that area? And if you are self-reliant, you're self-reliant because you lack some understanding of the character and the nature of God. And James says, hey, let me tell you who God is. That he is a God full of compassion toward you. That he is God that is for you and not against you. That he is God who is committed to fulfilling his purpose in your life. That he is a father who will Never remind you of all of your faults when you come to Him and tell you to go fix all those things and then come back. No. And when we understand the character and the nature of our God, man, it negates all of those excuses that we have for not praying. So can we take a moment for prayer this morning? Would you bow your heads? Father, we know that the enemy would place within our heart and our mind at this very moment all the reasons that we should not pray. 
he would try to inject fear and doubt within our life to keep us quiet, to keep us away from prayer. The enemy would remind us that due to the unrighteousness of our lives, that who are we because we have not earned a right to pray? But Father, we know today that the enemy is a liar and the father of all lies. And so, as your servant James has encouraged us as we come to the end of his letter, we will pray. Not in perfection, but we'll pray in the progress of our lives. Because we know that we are covered, God, in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. So that we are seen through your Son's perfection today. That does not negate our responsibility to strive for righteousness. Because faith without works is dead. But yet, it means that we come in the progress of our lives and not some future perfected state. So, Father, through your love and your mercy and your grace, remove all the roadblocks for prayer in our lives this morning. And may we take a moment to spend some time with you before we leave this place. Speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, the gifts of healing are for the church today. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for the church today that results in answers. Because you are a loving and a compassion-filled God. So work in our hearts and our lives this morning. Thank you, Father.